Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio, a radio show by working people for working people in New York City. We're live from WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Julian, and I'll be one of your hosts tonight. And I'm your other host, Carlos. We dedicate tonight's show to all those fighting for black liberation from their homes or in the streets. We stand with you. We have a special show tonight. Instead of our usual half-hour program, we now have an hour-long show to share with you. Tonight, we'll be speaking with Robert Cuffey, a rank-and-file union member and organizer with the Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus of the DSA. And he'll be talking with us about the demand to kick police unions out of the labor movement. We have plenty of questions for Robert about organized labor and the responsibility to Black lives, among other topics, too. But before that, and after this short musical break, we'll be sharing headlines of some of the biggest stories in the past week. So stay tuned. So, what's gonna be? <laughs> L-U-P-E, Joyce, come on. Woo! There's so many things to say right now. I got so much on my mind. Look at what is going down. How much higher can we climb? The system that we're living in depends on poverty and greed. But people don't need charity. That song was changed by Joy Denelaine and Lupe Fiasco. Welcome back to Working Class Hero Radio. Before we get to tonight's guest, we'd like to share some recent headlines you may have missed. Let's start with headlines across the United States. The Black Lives Matter uprising continues to shift public opinion positively across the country, even in rural and conservative-leaning towns and cities. Zoe Carpenter wrote about this in an article for The Nation called Black Lives Matter Protests Are Everywhere even in the unlikeliest places. In the article, Carpenter reviews what this looks like. They write, in Millerton, New York, a solitary white woman sat beside a road with a Black Lives Matter sign. In Leavenworth, a Bavarian-themed village in Washington's Cascade Mountains, 1,300 people shut up at a march, more than half the town's population. A huge group blocked off a thoroughfare in Fort Myers, Florida, and in Murphy, a town of 1,600 people, in the southwestern mountains of North Carolina, 450 went silent for eight minutes and 46 seconds. In Los Angeles, thousands of protesters organized by the Black Lives Matter LA chapter continue to rally outside the office of the county's first black district attorney, Jackie Lacey, demanding Lacey resign for not prosecuting killer cops, such as that in the case of Ezel Ford. Lacey is seeking a third term as LA's district attorney. Meanwhile, just yesterday, President Trump launched his most direct attack on the Black Lives Matter movement, citing an interview on Fox News with Black Lives Matter activist Hawk Newsom, in which Trump accused Newsom of sedition, treason, and insurrection. On the international scene, 
The Black Lives Matter uprising is sending shockwaves all over the world. Since the start of the uprising, solidarity protests have been organized often outside U.S. embassies in places like France, Australia, Brazil, Portugal, London, Ireland, South Africa, and Japan. Coming back to local news, here in New York City, Vocal NY and Black Lives Matter supporters of defunding the police have occupied City Hall Park to pressure the city to cut at least $1 billion from the New York Police Department in budget negotiations to be finalized by the end of June. We're going to go live to one of our correspondents, Leah Ramirez, who's at the encampment with a report on the latest developments. Leah, are you with us? It seems like we're having some technical problems trying to get in touch with Leah, who's at the encampment. We're going to play an interview that I was able to secure from one of the main organizers down at the encampment yesterday. Here it is. So what's your name? Uh, my name is Juwanza James Williams, and I'm an organizer, socialist, critical, um, crit critical of capitalism, and I do that in every part of my life. Can you tell me what is happening here? Um, you know, New Yorkers have turned up for, um, you know, to call for a paradigm shift. And the way that that looks is not defined. It's, it's, it's a new, it's always shifting, it's always growing. So people are out here occupying outside of, um, you know, um, New York City City Hall, which is the center of democracy in New York City. Because I want to make sure that people know that the real flesh and blood human beings that can make the reality of abolishing the police or defunding the police, which can be the same thing, um, the people are working in that building just over there. And they're going to have that discussion this week. So, and that's Mayor Bill de Blasio and Speaker Cory Johnson in the whole legislature, I mean, the whole city council, I should say. And um, people are here to like sort of demonstrate in defense of black lives, but also to remember why black lives are so fucking valuable. And I think that we see that with the sort of like way that the culture is being expressed here. And I think it's a reminder of how, you know, we, gotta, we can't separate these realities, how capitalism, race, and police violence are all interconnected. In fact, rely on each other to exist. So, um, what, is your, what is your favorite part about this encampment? My favorite part is that the, the number of people whose politics are mixed that are here, everybody's on the left, primarily. But some folks are more left. Some folks are absolutely, like, abolish the NYPD today. Today. Some are like, well, let's abolish the NYPD, you know, in a, a sort of an, an abolitionist tract. And I think that finding the way to sort of exist, coexist here, is how we build the kind of left movements that are going to transform our society. Like, we've got to figure out how to get the abolitionists to move further left. I mean, further, I mean um, how, we, how to get the reformists to understand how reform is antithetical to um, abolition, but that not all reforms are inherently antithetical to abolition. And, like, really the deep political education that's happening here, the deep community building, and the, and the, and the obvious sort of willful deflection um, or, like, uh, the willful sort of way that we are showing the world, not just about City Hall, but really the world, what it actually looks like to build power, what it actually looks like to challenge all of the notions of reality that have been sort of constructed for us, you know, from a sort of a white supremacist, heteropatriarchal uh, lens. Um, that's not actually life. That's not actually reality. And we are a living reminder. I always say that protest is the, is the, is the, is the physical manifestation of the body politic. And the body politic is saying, we want to see radical fucking changes. We want to see a total shift in how we do anything, how we even define safety, how we define life, how we define what is valuable. And we want to center the most vulnerable people. And you know, this is a long time coming. 
Um, thank you that uh, for that. Who who's calling this, and and what does it look like as far as who's participating for you? Um, so, um, a number of like organizations called this moment, but Vocal New York, where I work as director of organizing, I had the idea that we should have an occupation. Because, um, I mean, the same sort of factors that were at play that led to Occupy Wall Street where people started to understand how capitalism doesn't actually work for any of us except a very small number of people. And, you know, with the economic crises that led to devastating outcomes for many, many people. And it sort of created a moment of spark where people were able to draw connections between how Wall Street and their immediate experiences and their inability to stabilize their lives was not about them and not about their abilities to work or whatever, it was about the entire system, about how we were being exploited on a mass scale. And I think that a similar phenomenon is happening here. So I was hoping that I could help people draw the connection between the defund, camp I mean, the defund campaigns and the idea of police violence and make sure that they understand how intimately connected that is to, um, to capitalism, how intimately they connected that capital capitalism is to racism and how you can't really have either without both. And not, not effectively, for the capitalists at least. And, um, you know, I wanted to call out this culture of annihilation that this country has been a part of, this culture of violence that the police institutionalized and, and it's wrapped up all up in the society. So I was hoping, and I think it worked, to introduce the idea of Occupy in the context of defund to make sure that we are able to hold those complexities and to articulate those nuances and then bring the people together. Because even if the, the demand here for this particular occupation is to defund the NYPD by at least a billion dollars and reinvest that in housing, healthcare, social services, and education, but we created a platform which was very intentional for the, the leftist demand to be heard by thousands of people. And um, I wanted to create this space for that dialogue. And that's what's happening here. So the people that are here are the people that are really trying to, you know, search for what are the real ways that we can transform the world. Like, they have solutions, and they want to see what it means to put them forward. And I think whenever you, like, like any movement building requires deep political education. So it seems like we've been able to connect with Leah, who's our correspondent on the ground at the encampment at Occupy City Hall. Leah, are you with us? I am. Hi, Julian and Carlos. I'm here outside at uh, Occupy City Hall. Great. Can you give us a sense of how many people you see at the encampment right now? Yeah, um, definitely. So this has been going on since Tuesday, and it's grown considerably. Um, there's between 300 to 400 people um, who are holding it down despite the rain a little bit earlier. Um, and then the ongoing threats by the police to close things down because there are structures that are currently in place. And for folks who haven't been to the encampment, basically there are different stations throughout um, the encampment. One of them is a food distribution center. The other one's a people's library, a medic station. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, very, it's really great to see so many folks out. Great. And I'm sure folks are probably, you know, social distancing as best they can. I'm sure there's a lot of first aid that's being sent around or masks that are being distributed. Have you seen that? Yes, definitely. So uh, when I got here a little earlier, there was a moment where a uh, medic was being called because someone was unable, they weren't feeling well, um, and then an ambulance was called. So despite all of that, it still remained calm on the ground. Um, and then throughout that, um, like right after that, there was an impromptu rally that was being held on the side of City Hall on the steps. And it's being organized by a group who specifically were saying that they were not part of the nonprofits that were that helped organize the encampment. And they were really challenging protesters to think through what abolition looks like, um, along with calling, um, you know, what it means to be an abolitionist and calling um, to defund the police. 
Great, thank you. And uh, can you tell us, are, is there any programming that people are doing today at the encampment? Yeah, so I guess a little to go back to the rally, um, there was two speakers who actually spoke about some of the things that they're encouraging people to do. Um, one of them was encouraging folks to, to read up on abolition. And there's a people's library, so, you know, they, they have literature on that about, you know, what is abolition. And yesterday there was also a teaching around abolition as well. And then the second speaker, who was formerly incarcerated, spoke about his experience being um, in, solitary in solitary confinement and um, organizing a hunger strike with his fellow detainees. And in that, he was demanding that people call their city council members to um, defund, you know, the police, but also to appeal um, 1030, which would basically demilitarize the police. And here's the last question for you, Leah, uh, who's live with us uh, from the Occupy City Hall. What's the energy of the people like? It's definitely um, picked up since the rain. Folks were still here holding everything down. Um, there's cheering and chanting. There's even like their own like organized security. Um, you know, when cars are passing through, they're very like organized. Um, and it seems like people are in high spirits. Despite this being called by nonprofits, there's a revolutionary spirit in the air, um, which is, you know, really exciting. Leah, thank you for reporting live from Occupy City Hall encampment for our listeners. Great. Thank you. Those were some of the biggest headlines of the past week. When we come back from a short music break, we'll be speaking with Robert Cuffey, co-founder of the Socialist Workers Alliance of Guyana, a DC 37 union member and a member of the Afro-Socialist and Socialist of Color Caucus of DSA. He'll be talking with us about the role of the organized labor movement and what it should play in supporting the black freedom struggle in the United States. Stay with us. That was Freeze Tag by Kamasi Washington, Robert Glasper, Tyrus Martin, and Ninth Wonder. Thanks for sticking around to another show dedicated to the Black Lives Matter uprising. As the movement grows, concrete demands are coming to the front. Calls to defund the police are being taken up by mayors in major cities across the U.S. Demands to expel police unions out of the country's largest labor coalition, the AFL-CIO, are now growing. We spoke to Robert Cuffey before our show about this. Here's part one of that interview with Robert. So thank you, Robert, for being on our show with Working Class Heroes Radio. Hey, Julian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I guess let's get started with some of the basic questions. Um, how long have you been involved in the labor movement and what union do you belong to? Um, so I've been uh, part of 
DC 37 local 371, which is the social service employees union. Uh, when I started working with the city's administration for children's services 12 years ago. Um, prior to that, I was never an official part of the labor movement, but as a socialist, I got myself involved in various uh, labor struggles as best I could support them from the outside. So I can think about, for example, the most significant being the 2005 um, transit strike in the city, uh, when the transit workers shut down the whole city. I was part of the campaign there with some dissident union members who were fighting to ensure that the sellout contract that came as a result of that struggle was voted down, which it was miraculously by a slim margin rejected. What role do you think uh, New York City labor and labor more broadly can play in the uprising for Black Lives? Well, I think, um, you know, in an objective sense and ideally that the labor movement can play a huge role, right? Like the labor movement has all of these resources of the working class that it holds captive. You can think, for example, about the um, just the roles of members that uh, unions have, right? That they can contact, that they can phone bank, that they can email, and that they can turn out if they had the temerity to do so. Also, the unions also hold something else captive, and that's the collective resources of the working class insofar as people pay dues. So the union movement has a not insignificant war chest that it could deploy to any movement um, that's possible. But I think more importantly, uh, the question is why isn't the union movement playing a broader role? And part of that has to do with what I would say is the differentiation within the working class and the way labor uh, plays a role in that insofar as labor contains within it the uh, most protected members of the working class, the people with pensions, and some of us, like myself, with free health care and um, half-decent wages, right? Like something close and approximating uh, a living wage, not that we're anywhere nearly um, there, but the labor movement has great potential. The question then becomes, why has labor been dragging its feet? And I think one thing we've seen is that these rebellions in the streets have forced labor to act in a way it hasn't in a long time. So even symbolically now, we see a lot of labor's, labor uh, unions putting out statements in support of the uprising, statements in support of justice for people like George and Jamal Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, even when new um, instances and outrages of police brutality come to the fore, like the killing of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta recently, you see the unions responding in a way they didn't respond in the 2014-2015 uh, initial uprising of uh, Black Lives Matter. I think the challenge now is to move the unions from a symbolic display, right, to actually motivating for mass action. So over the weekend on Sunday when there was, was it Saturday, but over this weekend in New York City when there was a Caribbean People for Black Lives event held at Grand Army Plaza, the um, SEIU 1199 union actually had a contingent turnout. They actually had placards within their imaminent calling for justice for Brianna Taylor and justice for um, George Floyd. But that that's, you know, minimal support. The question is, how do we get the unions to, for example, build a day of action against police brutality? And how do we get the unions to do the thing that they're best suited to and that only the unions can do within 
the working class is just um, organize a general strike, let, that people should put down their tools and uh, engage in a work stoppage to show not just their power, but their power in solidarity with uh, the labor movement. And I think that's a true challenge um, in talking about labor under capitalism, because labor under capitalism, as I said before, reflects the many divisions within our class. That's super interesting. And I wonder if, you know, you were speaking about the temerity of the labor movement. Do you think any of that has anything to do with the fact that at the height of some of these protests, the AFL-CIO offices were also, um, I think, set aflame? Uh, I mean, I mean, literally a fire was set under the uh, AFL-CIO's ass, right? Um, Because the day prior to that fire, uh, the head of the AFL-CIO, Richard Trumka, was on Fox News trying to do a both sides thing where he said, you know, oh, well, racism is a daily fact in the lives of a lot of working class people. But then he turned to, oh, the protests that have uh, become violent are reprehensible and they mar the movement. And bim, bam, boom, their fire gets set in office and they, they real, the AFL-CIO realizes, oh, you know, we should probably issue a statement on these racist police murders of black working class people. And they did, and it's a remarkable statement insofar as, well, they repeat the line about violence being reprehensible, but they go so far as to say, we don't care about the buildings. Buildings burn, things can be replaced, and it's the struggle that counts. And it goes to show the extent to which uh, this uprising and the black struggle more generally can lead the wider class, right, in militancy that it can help people to push off the uh, conservatism that uh, is associated with the union movement, push off the um, appeals to authority and the appeals to electoralism alone that's been the way the union movement supposedly fights for its members. You know, the the demands are now uh, that are coming out of the movement uh, are talking about defunding the police um, and police departments across, across the country. Uh, there's also now a demand that is coming up about expelling police unions. Um, and we know, you know, there's a history of uh, police unions protecting killer cops and supporting racist law and order policies. What do you think of the demand for expelling police unions out of the AFL-CIO? Uh, it's a demand I fully support. I think if, for example, in also your u- local union federation, like your local central labor council, there are any cops within it that they should be kicked out and there needs to be a full reckoning, right? Uh, a conversation as to what role the police play in our society. And we don't really have that conversation. So cops get grouped as part of the working class when historically their role has been counterposed to being in the working class, right? So if you actually analyze the role police play historically from the beginning to end, you see that the police in the United States uh, getting their start first as um, part of slave patrols and strike-breaking squads, right? So what is the relationship of a slave patrol or a strike-breaking squad to the working class? And it's one that's diametrically opposed. It's one where for you to exercise your rights either as a working person or as a uh, free black person, every time you try to do that, someone clamps down on you and says no. And they're doing this on behalf of a social system called capitalism that's constituted by a specific state in the United States. But at the end of the day, the police represent an armed fist of the state, that a body that's there to enforce laws on behalf 
of business interests and property, right? So to me, one of the most telling examples is the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, which is this huge commercial development that's a real waste of space that took up a lot of working class um, people and displaced them. And this is what the police have been spending um, hours and hours protecting, even when there are no protesters there, there's barricades all around it. So that the police are part of protecting property and the social relations, the racist and classist social relations that lay behind it, really needs to be driven home within the, the labor movement. And why would we, as uh, members of the working class, organizing for betterment, want to have these same people within our unions when they're killing our uh, union sibling, right? Like, and I think it's very important to talk about the union members that have been killed by police, for example. If they're killing, uh, like Philando Castile, who was a teamster, for example, if they're killing union members, then we don't belong in the same organization with them. And we should not be kowtowing to them. Like, I think it was quite shameful a few months ago that Transport Workers Union Local 100 in New York City um, help, they, they just fed the NYPD, you know, like as if the pigs are not um, fed enough off the people's common labor with their ridiculous and excessive salaries and the overtime they get. So I do think the movement to kick the police out is one that needs to be supported, but people need to then get down to the nitty gritty of it to say, well, how exactly do the cops exist within our union federations? And uh, what are the practical steps to take to go about kicking them out if that's the goal uh, that we want, you know. And I, in this I say, you know, like, well, well what are the bylaws, like, you know, within um, the AFL-CIO or your state uh, central labor council that you would need to motivate to get this done? I think the AFL-CIO has responded to these demands already, and it seems like they're totally against any demand that, um, d that asks that the police unions be expelled. Um, I'm curious if you can speak to why that is. Why do you think the AFL-CIO uh, is like refusing to expel the police unions? Well, I think the AFL-CIO sees the police unions as their um, brothers in struggle. Um, and I use that gender normative term very deliberately, right? Because the AFL-CIO for the most part is a uh, white man's club. And there's a certain conservatism and racism that's bred there that they share with the police. But also, I don't think they want to lose uh, the dues from uh, the International Union of Police Associations with which they affiliate. And that's a very practical part of it, too, that, you know, like in front of them, there are these immediate material interests. So what the Im immediate material interests of a black person who lives an over-policed life is, is not something that the heads of the uh, country's union federations solidarize with. They solidarize with their material interests. They want to retain their role in society as uh, moderators between the working class and uh, their bosses. After this short musical break, we'll be returning with part two of our interview with Robert Cuffey. Stay tuned. Which side are you on, yeah. boy? Which side are you on? Silence is unappreciated. Which side are you on, I'm gonna go ahead and take that as disrespect. Which side are you on, Silence is death, yes. Which side are you on, Get off the fence, son. Which side are you on, Get off the fence, son. Which side are you on, Who stands to defend us? If you ain't with us, you against us. Uh, we drawing a line in the sand. 
it, so I guess it's gotta decide where you stand. There's an angel and a demon inside of every man. It's completely up to you. Getting the upper hand. Uh, I make music for the people. Survival guide the roof was me confusing it with evil. When I say the people, I don't just mean the ones that agree with me. I'm on the side of the people, regardless of who they seem to be following. Get off the fence, son. Get off the fence, son. Who will stand to defend us? That was Whose Side Are You On by Talib Kweli and Ninth Wonder. This is Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're playing part two of our interview with Robert Cuffey about whether or not Black Lives Matter to the labor movement. Let's get back to it. You spoke about, you know, getting down to the nitty gritty of what it means to you know, take on some of these police unions and, and push them out of the central labor councils uh, that exist in many cities and many states. You know, the police union, the, the PBA, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, is very politically powerful in New York City. And I'm wondering uh, what you think uh, the challenges a defund the police campaign might encounter here. I mean, the, so the PBA is going to be a huge obstacle, right? And we can see it. They, they respond immediately to any challenges. Um, so, for example, when uh, last week the 50A bill was repealed in the New York State Legislature, which stopped, which at the time allowed cops' identities to be shielded when they committed misconduct, the PBA immediately held a press conference to oppose this, right, because they could feel the tide turning against them. And the PBA will do what most uh, organizations in our society do. They will lobby politicians to try to get uh, laws that favor them. Um, and when it comes to defunding, I think the PBA understands that because the officers are in a contractual bargaining agreement with the city, that whatever calls for defunding happen, it's going to be a long, slow slog to um, actually get them put in place. So like, I love that we're in a moment where uh, one of the things that has gone viral is that young lady being arrested saying you gonna lose your job and it's turned into like a meme you know like you go lose your job and i myself have passed by cops singing it to them but like if you get very concrete and realistic you can see that defunding the police is in many ways um something that this government is trying to use as a way to co-opt this current movement right and and it took them a long while to get there a few precincts had to burn a few cop cars had to burn uh, before they said, oh, okay, maybe we should accede to this demand. But the way they're acceding to it is in many ways vacuous because first there's a, well, if, to be New York City specific, there's Mayor de Blasio's proposal to move about $600 million around in the budget. And when I say budget, I think this is important, right? Because we have to broaden our context to say, not only are we living in a capitalist system, we're living in a capitalist system where the perfect storm of everything wrong with this system has produced this pandemic called COVID-19. This pandemic is not just devastating people of color disproportionately, it's devastating to the working class widely. The 17,000 people who've died in New York City, um, it, it, it's, it's a number that's hard to fathom in a short space of time since around January or February. And one of the results of it is that as the city and state budgets come down, austerity will be the rule of the day, right? Like cutting, pen, cutting back on pensions or creating new tiers. 
cutting health health care, putting in place wage freezes, cutting people's jobs, and cutting uh, social services are what's coming down the pipes. So if we say defund the police, part of the conversation we need to be having is about the funding source, right? Like where is the money coming from? Because the government is going to come and say we're in a deficit. The federal government is not funding us. There's nothing we can do. Austerity is the rule of the day. And the question is, why should the austerity be balanced on the backs of working class and oppressed people when we're the ones who've suffered the most under this crisis? And before we even get to the question of defunding, let's talk about funding and push back and say, let the burden fall on the rich. Let the burden fall on the people who created this crisis. And there's a very practical way in New York State to address this, and it's through the stock transfer tax, which is um, a law in place that says Wall Street should be taxed, right, um, for every stock that's traded. But we do not enforce this law out of our love for Wall Street and a, a pseudo fear that Wall Street might pick up and leave, you know, like there'll be some kind of capital flight from New York City. But should this law be enforced, we'll be able to raise revenue upwards of $10 billion over a short period of time. And we contrast this then with defund the police. So the mayor wants to move about um, $6 million. Um, Scott Stringer put forward a proposal for uh, slashing the budget by $1 billion, Scott Stringer being the um, public advocate. Is he the public advocate? The city controller. He wants to slash the budget by $1 billion over a period of four years. And now uh, the speaker, Corey Johnson, and uh, some other legislative leaders of the committees within the city council have put forward a proposal for slashing the budget by $1 billion over the next fiscal year. If you look at all of these, really and truly what it is, is a reshuffling of priorities. It's, take, it's putting a freeze in overtime, taking away this and taking away that. It doesn't in any way harm the police insofar as it restricts their ability to carry out their tasks and that task being um, keeping the working class in check and brutalizing oppressed people. So, I mean, one, one point of comparison is that should this billion dollars be taken away, it would pretty much mean the police go back to being what they were under Bloomberg as opposed to what they are under um, de Blasio. So Miriam Cabra wrote a great op-ed in the New York Times where she said, cut the budget by half. And I fully support that. So, I mean, and I'm building a defund the police contingent um, for the Juneteenth March on Friday, right? So I say all these things to say that, yes, defund the police, but also we have to get specifics about how we want the police defunded. Um, we have to then deal with labor questions, right? Because uh, DC 37 uh, leaders, for example, have put forward a proposal to say of the about 500 cops who do desk duty, let us then strip them of that job and make it civilian jobs and let civilians do the death duty, let the civilians do the clerical work. And on paper, that sounds like a great idea, but does that mean we then have 500 more police officers on the street? And is that something we want in our communities as we fight and we're part of this uh, nationwide uprising against police terror? Um, other questions to consider, right, would be, the money that's taken away from the NYPD, how do we know that the cuts within the NYPD won't affect civilian members? 
of the NYPD. I would say, for example, one of the most um, both inspiring and confusing moments of the protests we've been in is two Saturdays ago when the movement of rank and file educators held a protest outside um, Gracie Mansion on behalf of black students. And it was a very great and moving rally. And during the rally, an NYPD tow truck not only went by and honked his horn in support, over the live speaker, the black driver said, Black Lives Matter, the great cheers from the crowd, right? So when we say defund the police, are we defunding the civilian employees? Are we defunding the tow trucks? Are we defunding the um, parts of the police department that are not armed, right? So this could tie into, for example, with the demand to, for the cops out of the schools, yes. We don't want um, a violent presence uh, enforcing discipline in our schools, that's right. But then the question becomes, are school safety officers who Giuliani put to be employed by the NYPD in 1998 cops? We know them to be peace officers insofar as they've taken certain exams and licensing within New York State. They have the ability to detain people and take them to the precinct to be charged. But are they themselves cops? Like I, at, at that same aforementioned movement of rank and file educators rally, I heard someone say during a speech, we don't want cops in the schools, we want peace officers. And even though like, you know, I can support the spirit of that demand, the reality is the school safety officers in the schools are peace officers. If you say cops out the school, how do you then interrogate that demand? How do you reality test it? How do you, for example, deal with the fact that these school safety officers themselves are unionized and not by the police benevolent association, but by a Teamsters local, right? Like how do we address these mostly people of color who work at this not so glamorous and desirable job who themselves are union members? I don't necessarily have answers, but I would just encourage everyone that, you know, just like if a politician comes out and makes promises, you don't take them at their word, you question the reality test, and you ask how they can be held accountable. When demands are raised, a similar critical process needs to go in where you interrogate the demands, where you reality test the demand and say, well, not only how do we win this, but what, is the, what are we specifically asking for? I think many, um, many people here in this country are probably surprised to see similar protests springing up across the world um, in relation to the Black Lives Matter protests and uprisings here. Uh, I'm curious if you can speak a little bit about that. I would go back to the concept of existing under capitalism as a form of a social relation, right? And one of the forms in which um, Western capitalism has been built is uh, through the use of uh, shadow slavery. But part of what this has also done, it's not just created racism, but it's created race insofar as it's excluded black people from not just uh, certain jobs, but even certain forms of social organization, right? So that black people have been pushed more and more in the US and across the world into interacting with each other. And this has created what I would call a global black identity where people where, where the general racialization of the world has been built on the racialization of black people initially. And this has always um, created the basis for a certain Pan-Africanism, as people call it. And as people in various countries like Paris and Brazil also go through the issue of racial oppression, 
they see parallels in the United States, right? But as people in the United States fight back against that racism, they can then see parallels in ways in which they can struggle. So like this global solidarity that you're seeing in these, upra- in these uh, solidarity protests in places like Brazil, Jamaica, Kenya, and Paris are, are partly a result of this. But another aspect of it has to do with the fact that in the United States, we have an, a, a rising authoritarian government that's reflective of rising authoritarianism in the world generally. And in the same way, the black struggle gives an example on how to lead in fighting against racism. This uprising that we're having is also giving people an example on how to fight back against authoritarianism about when people see that the president of the United States is running scared to a bunker, when he's, when the only wall he's built is one around the white house, right? It gives inspiration to the masses of people around the world for themselves to engage in protests and uh, solidarity struggle. The last question I'd like to ask you is, um, I want to pivot a little bit and ask you, you know, you are in the Democratic Socialists of America and you're very involved in their labor organizing efforts. What do you think uh, should the socialist movement be doing to relate to the black freedom struggle right now? And how is DSA doing that? Well, you know, um, the Democratic Socialists of America is a very interesting body to talk about. It kind of varies widely chapter by chapter. So I'm in this signal thread with some um, friends who are uh, supporters of the Syrian revolution. And one of them is actually in the Twin Cities in, in Minneapolis and just told me about how DSA has been kicking ass in the Twin Cities. And I was like, that's great. And here, and here in New York City, like DSA has played a critical role in supporting um, a lot of the protests that have been happening. There's, for example, like a, um, there's a single thread and different things that inform people and text blasts about what protests are happening. Um, but as far as DSA labor goes, I, I believe it, it, it's hard to quantify or qualify uh, the exact response, but I can speak to the DSA labor branch in New York City, and I'm on the organizing committee of this labor branch. And I think we have pivoted immediately towards this movement and to the point that all of our meetings and all the work we do has been about this movement and uprising against police brutality. We're building labor contingents, for example, that will um, show up to be part of a labor for black lives at various protests. We've endorsed the movement for black lives uh, weekend of action for this 16 Juneteenth weekend, right? And more importantly, we're building on what the previous um, uptick of struggle was uh, during this moment. And that previous uptick happened around COVID, right? So it's not coincidental, for example, that COVID generally affects people of color uh, disproportionately and Black people especially, and that Black people have now been leading the fight back against um, capitalism generally and police terror. Like one good example being that uh, George Floyd, when they did his autopsy, his um, anti- his test came back positive for uh, COVID-19 antibodies, which means he survived having COVID-19 only to be killed by the police. And like that needs to be seeped in to the labor work we do because we were having these like COVID-19 labor organizing calls. And 
everyone at their workplace are kind of like taken aback. How do we get PPE? How do we fight? What do we do? And we respond to these COVID-19 organizing calls once a week. And I think we, in many ways, then have to pivot to organizing around the struggle for Black lives. And that's being done in baby steps. But the reality is that the DSA, while we have a lot of talented organizers within the union movement, we don't really, we're not deeply grounded within the, the union movement, right? Like we don't really have the numbers to hold sway, but in the places that we do, the question is, how do we put forward a more radical perspective? How do we, for example, build links with the longshore workers who are shutting down the ports for a whole day? And how do we get our workplaces to respond in same? In New York City, we're hampered by this uh, statewide Taylor law that prevents public sector workers from striking. But like between striking and doing nothing, there's a lot. And I think that has to converge on a protest movement that, cent that centers labor. And DSA as an organization of thousands of people within the city is able, I, I think should be able to build such a movement, build such a march and build labor contingents at them. Ideally, you'd think the labor movement would just be like stopping everything else it's doing, like these uh, damn electoral campaigns <laughs> and just pouring all their heart, soul and energy into this very heroic and brave movement that's uh, achieved so much in so little a time. Um, yeah, I mean, traditionally, I mean, ideally the labor movement should be leading this struggle because of the resources it has. But those resources themselves kind of act as an impediment, I believe, towards mass militant action. Um, and it's really the people with nothing to lose but their chains. Um, Tabara, Marxist friends, who were on the front lines of the battle, on the front lines of the street. You know, when a curfew was put in place here in New York City a couple of weeks ago, uh, union members were getting stopped by the police on their way to and from work and getting harassed. But it wasn't the union that was in the streets chanting F your curfew. It was uh, the young people of color and the other people in the city who decided to defy the curfew to restore um, the real validity and actualization of the uh, First Amendment rights that people love to say we um, have here in the United States. So we have to go through a process where we self-actualize ourselves, where we say, if there's a change to be made, where do I plug in and how do I make it? And in many ways, it's not just a moment or a movement. It's a lifelong commitment. That's what I would say to people that, you know, if you've been activated to make the world a better place by the rise of Trump, by seeing Bernie Sanders' campaign of, or Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, you have to ask yourself, how do I sustain myself in this moment for life? And I have no answers, but um, that's a question everyone should be asking themselves. We want to thank Robert for his interview with us. We're going to take another short musical break. But when we come back, we want to hear what you have to say. So give us a call at 212-209-2877. Robert will be joining us live to answer your questions. That number again is 212-209-2877. We'll be right back. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. 
Welcome back to Working Class Heroes Radio, right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. What you just heard was, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free, by Nina Simone. Now, we'd like to open the lineup for some callers and hear your thoughts. Before our break, we were talking to Robert Cuffey about the fight to kick police unions from the AFL-CIO. Hopefully, Robert now joins us live. Robert, are you here with us? Hey, thank you for having me. Robert, thanks. Thanks for being here with us on the show. Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so we hope to have some callers call in um, so that you know we, they can give us some some feedback or we what they think. We actually do have some callers, office. guys. Sorry to interrupt. Great. Maybe we should just go to that right now. Okay. All right, caller, you are on the air. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Hi, my name is King, and I'm currently calling from Bergenfield, New Jersey. Are you able to hear me? Great. Welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you for playing that interview, Robert. Sure, caller. Tell us, what what are your thoughts about the show? Do you have a question for us? um, Well, yeah, I wanted to say sort of like a comment followed with a question. The first thing is I wanted to say I listened to the interview, and I really appreciate, um, Robert, you know, analyzing the the issues, you know, that were laid out. And um, one thing in particular that kind of stood out was um, the part of the discussion about how to deal with defunding the police and where to go from there. And, you know, and many times this is clearly the existential question, right? Like, what are we going to do? What is the thing that we actually do? We know what we want, but how do we do it? So being asked a question like, what is the first step? What comes to mind to me is that the first thing that needs to happen and happen right away is that we need to immediately cancel the 2021 cadet class of new recruits because that is the machine that churns out these individuals and we need to cut the machine from even bringing new ones onto the beat or whatever. So that's something that could be done right away. It seems to me like a great first step rather than scrambling onto where do we go first. I think that would be a great thing to do. And then from there, follow it up with going to each neighborhood, for example, let's say Brownsville, Brooklyn, of which where I resided for a long time, um, and basically taking every adult in that neighborhood, 18 years or older, bring them into a town hall, take every name into a hat, draw, I don't know, 40, 50 people, and those will become a people's you know, community commission to review the records of the existing officers to remove any of them that have anything from five complaints or more. Immediately just get rid of them. There's no need to reshuffle and figure out where their jobs belong. Their jobs need to go. If there's 500 sitting on the desk, as Robert mentioned, those 500 just need to go. We cannot be worried about they're going to lose a job. Those are some brilliant, brilliant ideas. Um, I'm, 
I just want to make sure we have time for the next callers. Uh, could Sorry you, to be do rambling, you have a question? No, absolutely. The no, they're great. Great yeah, ideas. Yeah, that was my, my, my question was with that, in a sense, sort of like a comment and, a, you know, a question to Robert, like, what, and to all of you there and to any other listener, um, what would be, how would they feel about a first step where literally we stop the machine that turns these people out? And that should be the first thing, and we laser focus on that so that we don't have no new recruits coming onto the street that are going to brutalize our people. And I'm sorry that, you know, I kind of rambled a little bit, but I'll take my answer off the uh, off air, uh, off the phone, and I'll listen on to the show. We appreciate you, caller. Much, much, much appreciated. Robert, do you have any thoughts about what um, Yeah, was I, I believe the caller's name was King, and I think that was a brilliant contribution, and it seems really grounded in the lived experience of heavily policed and overly policed Brownsville. And it speaks to some questions, one question or one of community control over the police, right? So like a lot of us talk about what a new society could look like. And if a new society still requires us to have a force in our society to deal with the sociopaths, for example, that capitalism creates, uh, one, one, one way in which you can envision it is if there is a police force, a police force, should, for example, should be elected and held accountable to the people and steps on the way there, like the community, getting rid of officers who have terrible disciplinary records was a great idea. And I also think um, the hiring um, the hiring of cadets is great, too, right? Because we see people do anti-recruitment campaigns regarding the military. We very rarely see them do it regarding the police academy, right? And it also speaks to the question I talked about on the call of um, austerity and the redistribution of austerity because the city of New York, while public sector workers since COVID-19 started, has instituted a hiring freeze. And it goes to show how different and how special they treat the police that they would still have an incoming cadet class while incoming classes of child protective specialists incoming classes of uh, transit workers, uh, incoming classes of other city workers are put on hold, but for some reason they would go forward with the uh, incoming class of cadets. And I think that's a great wedge issue to uh, bring to the fore the role police play in our society and how different they are from the working class. Thanks for that. Appreciate the caller too. His name is Kane, I believe you said, Robert? Yeah. I didn't catch that. Sorry, Kane. Um, I think we have a couple other callers that we can take. May have time for just one more. Okay. Um, caller, you are the last caller. Please tell us your name and where you are calling from. Stan, Manhattan. I'll try to be brief. I, actually, I don't even have to attempt to. What the first man said about uh, the establishment protecting itself via the police is what it's all about. That's why our wages were kept down so low for so long. That's why everything that's rotten that's been happening has been happening because money talks. The rest of it walks. Very simple stuff. Stan, thank you for that. Um, I appreciate it. The rest of it is garbage. Robert, I, I think we have just a couple more minutes. I wonder if you, I know you're working uh, to organize a march on Monday. Could you just briefly speak to that for, for our callers? 
Yeah, so the Afro-Socialist Caucus of the Democratic Socialists of America, along with our racial justice working group, partners in the community, like uh, some at Local 100, Fight Back in the Transit Union, the Fight for Our Lives Coalition, are building a mass march on Monday that will be starting in Washington Square Park at uh, 5 p.m. with a rally marching at 6 p.m. And uh, this march is intended to... um, uplift the demand to uh, defund the police as well as the demand for cops out of schools and out of our unions and uh, the march will be um, heading downtown uh, in a very powerful way to try to coincide and pressure the city council to let them know that you know if as they say in the mainstream that a budget is a moral document then society has spoken very loudly with a clear voice that uh, we are overly policed, and we want this reflected in the budget with as large a cut as possible to the police uh, funding. Robert, thank you for that. Thank you for being on our show with us. Working Class Heroes Radio will be at the march to cover it. Hopefully, we can get some some great interviews and footage for our show upcoming shows. Um, Julian, can I plug one more thing? If you can, quickly, like maybe 20, uh, 30 seconds. Not even that long. We're building a similar march in East New York, Brooklyn, uh, to bring a spotlight to the most heavily policed communities. We'll go, be going from East New York, Brooklyn, to Brownsville on the 4th of July, so please look out for more information on that, and uh, get in touch with me if you're interested in helping to build. Robert, thank you so much again for that. I appreciate you for having me. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we're out of time for tonight. Thank you, Robert, for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening. Tune in next week as we continue to take up conversations on police repression in light of the ongoing uprising. To listen to past shows, please check out wchradio.org. If you like our show and want to support community radio, you can go to wbai.org and become a BAI buddy on behalf of Working Class Heroes Radio. We'll see you next week on Saturday at 6 p.m. In the meantime, stay safe, New York, and as always, in solidarity. Get up. Get up. Get up. Get up. Long as my heart beating and I'm breathing air, I fight for me. What a sight. Anytime, anywhere. And I will never back down from it. That's not coming. I just attack from the front and don't ask questions or nothing. Do you hear?